This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Vivali, coming at you with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome times awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, doesn't think Joe Ingles can defend a mother-effing traffic cone co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. We are going to roll through the Eastern Conference over-under win totals today since they were released, and we'll get to the Western Conference ones later this week. Before we start, um, just want to remind, beg, plead, implore everyone once again to continue getting onto iTunes and rating us, leaving us a review. We really appreciate it when those numbers go up. Um, and when we're kind of at this point where those numbers are peaking, we encourage you to steal friends and family families' phones. But, you know, we'd also appreciate it if you legitimately just recommend us to someone. Have them check us out if you know they listen to podcasts or they're looking for a podcast. Maybe they don't even listen to podcasts, but you know they like really bad basketball analysis and think that they could get into this podcast. Anyway, you can help get the word out uh, that we really appreciate it. And again, taking the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day searching Hardwood Knox in iTunes, uh, leaving us a five-star review, leaving us some feedback. We'd we'd really just um, appreciate it, as always. And you can also find us wherever you get your podcast if it's not iTunes. But again, iTunes is, is the best way to help us at the moment. As always, you can also still get 15% off at the NBA Math Shop. That's mbamath.com slash shop, promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. So be sure to use that. And we, again, appreciate everything that our listeners do for us. It always does humble Andy and I when we realize that people actually do listen to this podcast. But with all of that out of the way, we ask the Joe Ingles hot take artist, Andrew Bailey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, You lied twice in your intro. That's all I do on this podcast is lie. Um. If any of you out there have any uh, notion that Joe Ingles cannot defend, please visit my timeline to see just a wonderful thread on that. And then our analysis is just spot on. I don't think we've ever been wrong about anything on here, right? No. (laughs) Maybe I'm the one lying now. but (laughs) That does kind of dovetail nicely into this. So Andy and I are finally keeping track of all our bad basketball takes. So as we kind of roll through these (laughs) over-unders, um, these are marked down in an officially official Hardwood Knox Google spreadsheet that um, Andy owns and will never let me own. Um, and we'll be able to circle back later in the year once everything's wrapped up and just see how wrong we were. And, you know, maybe if we were too wrong, we'll just hope that you guys forgot about this moment right here, right now, so that we can skip over such a podcast. 
and you gave me ownership of that. Uh, there was no coercion, as I've often told you guys to coerce people into subscribing to our podcast. This was freely given to me, but you're right. I'm, I'm never giving it back. This is now my Google Doc. I'm perfect. I don't want any more responsibility in my life, so I'm totally okay <laughs> with that. And coerce sounds so forceful. I prefer Cokes. <laughs> okay, that's definitely a, a more mild version of that. That's, that's a good Andy word. And want you to threaten people. <laughs> I would prefer you didn't. Um, these over-unders were really tough though. Now let's talk about actual basketball since I'm assuming that's why everyone's here. I don't, you said that you don't and that you used to, but I still go into every year just thinking that I'm going to destroy the over-unders and then I, I go through it and I'm like, oh, this is tough. No, I feel like legitimately I could go either way on all 30 teams. Um, (laughs) it's like agonizing me for me to pick this. Because it's so easy to see either scenario in my mind. Yeah, for so, for, for the fun. most part, there's like for me there were a couple where I, where I said, "Oh, those were low," or, or "Those were way too high." But uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you right there. This was like an exercise in having major headaches trying to figure it out. <laughs> Should we start with the uh, Atlanta Hawks? Yeah, let's go alphabetically. Their over under was set. At 23 and a half minutes, I'm there. They're going to be pretty sure the worst team in the world. I'm scared for all the lowest over under. Um, I don't really know <laughs> what they're going to be other than let's just get Trey Young as many reps as we possibly can. Like John Collins will probably have a bigger second year. Um, beyond those two guys, what is their identity really? Torian I mean, maybe, Prince. I was going to say further development for Torian Prince. Um, they have a couple other interesting young guys. Like I, I like Kevin Herter. I like Omari Spellman. I don't think either of those guys are going to add any wins to any team uh, in year one. So they're they're certainly not going to add it to a team like the Hawks. They may try to trade Kent Bazemore for the entire season, who's who's maybe one of their only winning players left. Um. So they're a team I could see, like they're they're set at twenty three and a half. I could see them even coming in under twenty. So I I just gave that little speech about how every single team was hard for me. But if I had to pick <laughs> one that was kind of easy, it seems like the Hawks under twenty three and a half was was at least kind of easy. Yeah, I went under for them as well. That's always risky because twenty three and a half. It's low, yeah, that's it, for sure. And if you go under, it's because you're not trying to win, and they're not trying to win. And that that's going to be awkward territory to traverse now. Now that you know those bottom three teams all get the same odds, but there is there's there's an element of organic tanking here too, right? Because they're not maybe they're they'd be fine getting a bottom three record. They're just going to end up the worst team in the league organically because you want to get off Kent Bazemore's money, and I have full confidence he'll be moved by the end of the year. You you probably t- trade Dwayne Dedman um, for whatever you can get. By the oh, trade about Goodman, yeah. Uh, so, and they have taken on Baysmore though. That's like the interesting thing about his his contract is just so huge. I th- I think I proposed this on the pod. It should be Alexis Aginsa and Solomon Hill for Baysmore. You kind of save money oh, yeah. off of next year from Baysmore. Uh, maybe you don't want. I don't think you're going to get an expiring contract in exchange for Baysmore though. That would no. That would be really surprising for me. Uh, the one thing I will note about them, I'm really interested to see 
how Torian Prince does because he was a monster to close last year for them when they were dealing with all those injuries. Uh, I think Trey Young is going to eat into his touches if Jeremy Lin stays healthy. I'm assuming they'll keep him because he sells tickets. But over his last 30 games last year, uh, Torian Prince averaged 17.3 points, 4.3 rebounds, 3.1 assists, 1.2 steals, while slashing 43.2, 38.3, and 88.9. And he, yeah, was playing crazy. Almost, he was playing under 30 minutes a game, 29.9. I'm very interested to see if they'll get him some more kind of point forward touches and just, just kind of how he grows. I've always been a little or maybe a lot higher that on him than you or even friend of the pod slash NBA maths founder, Adam Frommel, but I'm, I'm all aboard the Torian Prince train. He, uh, if you limit that sample even more down to like 16 games, all those numbers you just listed go up a little bit. And in those last 16, he had a game with 38 points, seven assists and six rebounds. He had another one with 38 points and eight rebounds. Um, another one with 33 points, eight rebounds, five assists. Like he had, you're right. He was just a monster down the stretch. And he is, um, he's just 24 years old. So you could see him easily being part of whatever core they're sort of restarting with. His timeline is, is certainly close enough to Trey Young and John Collins to be a part of the team going forward. Um, yeah, those, those last 16 games you mentioned, 20.9 points per game. 4.1 4.1 assists. He slashed basically 46, 39, and, and 91. Yeah, it was absurd. Um, when he wins his first MVP award, you have to admit that I was right. <laughs> I will. Did you think, uh, I was just thinking about this when we were talking about Bazemore, and this is, <laughs> I've already gotten off, off today's topic. Um, did you think it was weird that Dallas traded a first one round pick to Atlanta instead of taking on Bazemore's contract. I did because uh, it, someone like you shouldn't because you're higher on the Mavericks and think that maybe you could possibly that they could possibly make the playoffs. But uh, for me, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I don't think they're going to come close. And I, I know next year's draft isn't supposed to be spectacular and you're planning on the pick not conveying, but I, or you're planning on the pick conveying because you're not going to be like that at, as bad as the protection is. It was top five protected, right? So I don't, I'm just not at the stage they are in their development. You have Smith Jr. You have Luka Doncic. Why wouldn't you want, I know you're going to have cap space next year, but why wouldn't you want to have that pick? And Kent Bazemore actually helps you win if that's what that's you're trying to do. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Wait, and Adding his salary this summer would that have taken them out of the DeAndre Jordan no. running, or would they? No, they still would have had enough space, right? Yeah, they were because they're going to be at the moment. They're if they want to, there's a pathway for them to get to more than fifty million dollars in cap space. And so, if you take on Kent Bazemore's salary and he'll be making nineteen point three million. It becomes tougher for you to get to pure max room, but you could have gotten a $30 million in max room with Kemp Bazemore on the books, depending on if you want to keep Barrera. You know, these are all those holds. Um, yeah. You, you could have gotten to max room with Bazemore on the books. And so that's why I found it. So they just, still could have signed DeAndre Jordan. Yeah. Oh, they don't. And yeah. because DeAndre Jordan's probably going to get half of what he's making this year would be my guess. Maybe a little bit more than half. They would have had no trouble keeping him and maybe adding another player 
And then you still, you know, Bazemore's contract kind of aligns nicely with Harrison Barnes and Dwight Powell. If they both exercise their player options, they're going to come off the books in 2020 as well. And so you have Bazemore coming off. You might be able to do some real damage in 2020 free agency then as well. And by that point, Dennis Smith Jr. has played out three years. Doncic has played out his first two. You have a little bit better of an idea of what you have, and you got to keep your 2019 first-round pick. Yeah, it just seemed to me like so so good for the Hawks for getting a first-rounder. I still think they objectively lost that trade. Um, but if they were if they were higher on Trey Young than Luka Doncic all the way through and they were able to get him and add a first-round pick, that's not bad. But, of course, that has nothing to do with this season's uh, win total. And like I said, I got us off track, but I'm going to get well, us back on now. Well, I was going to say, what do you think of Trey Young? Do you, because I'm, I was like, I wasn't really high or low on him compared to like the national uh, opinion when he was drafted. I was at the Utah Summer League when he really struggled. And so I, I kind of took one foot off at that point. But then he had a couple of really good games in Vegas. Um, and one thing that encouraged me from him was, I don't, I don't know when he said it, but he said something like, I'm not trying to be Stephen Curry, which is who everybody is comparing him to. I'm trying to be more like Steve Nash. And I think when he had, when I, when I heard that, I, that was encouraging to me. Um, cause that's been the common comparison for him all through his freshman season was this is the next Stephen Curry. And I don't think he was ever going to live up to the billing as as literally the greatest shooter in the history of the game. Um, now, obviously, Steve Nash is a lofty comparison too, but if he focuses on creating for others, I, I think that will help him. I, I'm still not like, I'm not a pound the drum either way kind of guy with Trey Young. I, I think I probably need to see how the first couple months of the season play out. There were some things that happened in summer league at least in Utah, that were concerning to me. Um, not being able to get back past guys on the dribble as easily as I thought. Some of those long pull-ups weren't even close. Um, but he was actually better than I expected as a passer and at staying in front of guys on defense. So there's give and take <laughs> with him, and this is just sort of my really long-winded set way of saying I just need to see him play in real games for a couple months. I think he's going to be... and. Kind of to your initial point, I feel like I wasn't, I always like counterlined with what the general consensus was on him. I thought he was overrated. And then all of a sudden I thought people were way too low on him. I think he's going to be really good. And the degree of difficulty on some of the shots he was taking was impressive, even when they weren't going into me. But what really got me was the passing, as you said, because a lot of guys in his type of role, they're not good passers. Like they're just these microwave yeah. scorers. But he really has a nice feel for the game and the half court offense and finding his teammates and not just kind of this force of nature, last resort passing maestro. He uses these nice angles, can really make some good flings on the move. And that's why I think he's going to end up contending for the Rookie of the Year award unless the Hawks, for some reason, just decide to play Jeremy Lin 35, 40 minutes a game. So I think he's going to be really good. I I do think they made a mistake passing on Doncic. That I maybe it pans out in their favor, but I don't see this being a trade. I think we look back and say, "Wow, Trey Young was really good," but but Doncic Doncic to me is going to be transcendent, and that's where the Hawks kind of missed. 
This is my last thing on Trey Young. Um, and I, I looked this up on July 5th, so it doesn't include his Vegas run, which probably boosts these numbers by like 1% or 2% on each one. But since the calendar switched to 2018, which is 20 college games, and at that point, three uh, summer league games, Trey Young was shooting 38% from the field and 32% from three. Um, so it was a pretty long, protracted stretch of struggles for him. And like I said, the Vegas, the Vegas run probably pulls both of those numbers up, like maybe one or 2%. Um, but I, I think some of the concerns people have are valid. I don't think it's, I don't think they're enough to be like, Oh, he's, he's a bust. Like some people have said, but, um, Jury is still out on him for me. All right, the Celtics are at fifty-seven and a half. This was hard. I will let you take. I'll let you take this one first. I went under because just fifty-eight to win fifty-eight games is a lot, and you look at how many they won last year at fifty-five, and you think, well, Gordon Hayward's coming back. He should be worth at least three three wins on his own if Kyrie stays healthy for the rest for the entire year. You bake in an older Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown's third year. I I could very easily see them winning more than 60 games. I just fall on this. 58 games is a lot. We don't know what Hayward is going to look like. I think Kyrie Irving's going to be fine. I don't think you can count on him to be available for the entire season. There will be some kind of an adjustment period because they have so much talent on the roster. I also won't won't rule out kind of a big mid-season shakeup. If they get a a feeling or an inkling that Kyrie Irving isn't coming back in free agency, and as you pointed out before the pod, that Kyrie to to New York in some form, whether it's Brooklyn or the Knicks, seems to just be getting louder and louder. And I'm not saying that he's going to leave. Boston is objectively the best situation to be in. But Kyrie Irving has kind of always danced to the beat of his own drum which is also fine. I could see Danny Ainge moving him, and that creates an, another dynamic that you have to adjust to. We also do not know how Terry Rozier is all of a sudden going to adapt to being the third guard on this roster, point guard, because you have to assume Marcus Smart sees the floor before him, or maybe he doesn't. They have all good problems in Boston, and again, it wouldn't shock me to see them just obliterate this mark if everyone stays healthy. There was just something about them that that made me want to tilt towards the under, and maybe it was if we had a nitpick. They, it's possible that they have just a lack of surrounding shooting. If you look at their roster, I think you can guarantee that Kyrie Irving and Jason Tatum are going to be demonstratively above average. Who else are you gonna promise gets there? Will Gordon Hayward be there post injury? Can Jalen Brown repeat? from last year, and I, I think he will. So I don't want to crap all over Boston right now, but there are enough questions for me to essentially say that this team is going to win under 60 games. That's how I looked at it. Yeah, this one was really tough for me, too. I, I went back and forth on this a bunch of times, and it was really more about the number than the Celtics that made me go under as well. Um, a lot of people are still picking Boston to to be the number one seed in the East heading into the playoffs. And I can see why I just don't think it's as much of a foregone conclusion as a lot of people seem to think that it is. They, they outperform my expectations on like six or seven different occasions last season. So they could very well 
do that again. And I, there's, there's no reason to think Brad Stevens can't make all of these moving pieces work. Uh, I don't think he'll have any problem fitting Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward into what they did in the playoffs last season. So I think they're going to be very, very good. I think they're a strong contender to be the number one seed in the East. It's just like you said, 58 is super high. Um, I could see them being like, you know, 56, 57 wins, which would just barely be under. But like I said, this was a hard one for me to pick. Look at us in lockstep through two teams. (laughs) Here, we're finally going to break off. Um, I've got the Nets. And actually, when I was doing this last night, I, I had the Nets as an over. But as I was entering them into this doc that you sent over, that you I switched. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I now have, <clears throat> excuse me, I have the Nets as an under. Um, at They were 32.5. Yeah, good call. I like a lot of guys on their roster. Um, you I, like I think Joe I Harris? Still, no way. <laughs> I love Joe Harris. I think I'm still higher on D'Angelo Russell than a lot of people are. His Before he got hurt last season, he was off to a crazy start. And I should, uh, I want to look that up. So, remind me. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie was awesome filling in for D'Angelo Russell. I think those two guys can play together. Um, Alan Crabb, forget his contract, is, is a pretty good spot up shooter. They've they've got talent up and down the roster. I think Jared Allen could be a good prototype sort of rim rolling, rim protecting five. I just still think they're maybe a year or two away from being um really competitive. The so var- go ahead. The variable for them is do they want to win because they have their own first round pick back. Yeah. That makes a big difference for for sure. I went over, which is a Maybe it's an uncalculated risk on my part, but I fall where you are. I like too many of the guys on this roster. Spencer Dinwiddie is good. Even when his his shooting kind of tapered off last year, he's still someone that can defend even up to some wings. I'm not even talking about both just backcourt spots. He's super long um, and can get across some threes, I would think. Joe Harris, great complimentary guy. Damari Carroll has rebooted his trade value there. You signed Travion Graham because the Hornets are fucking crazy, and I don't understand what happened there. Uh, Jared Dudley was a sneaky good pickup for them. Uh, they could make moves at the trade deadline. Yeah, Maybe they even look at trading Rondé Hollis-Jefferson because he's coming up on restricted free agency, and I don't know that they're going to hash out an extension. I just There's a lot of talent here, and I th- even at their center spot now with Ed Davis, maybe even Kenneth Reed, you get some good minutes from him. At the five, I was gonna. I was gonna ask if you thought he'd have a role this year. I think he'll have something of a role because you look at all their prospective fives. I know Ken Three doesn't shoot threes. Uh, Ed Davis doesn't either. Th- those guys. I would think Ed Davis plays more, and you're gonna give a bulk of the minutes to Jared Allen. But I don't think we're looking at a Jaleel Okafor type situation either. There are so many different lineup permutations that they can run. What I'm really interested to watch, though. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, I think he's the highest end prospect on this roster. That being said, I think Karis LeVert is going to end up being the best player of anyone on this team right now. And if that kind of becomes clear as next year goes on, you might be looking at the Nets as a 35 to 37 win team. And I don't know that they're motivated to tank. It has nothing really to do with the lottery 
reformation. It's more so they could have dual max slot slots next year in free agency. They've already been linked to Kyrie Irving, Jimmy Butler. They'll probably be linked to Kevin Durant. I'm not saying they want to exist only to impress those guys, but when you look at how bad some of the other teams are in the league right now, they would have to be pretty flagrantly trying not to win to get one of those top three lottery spots. I just, I have a feeling if they stay healthy, that they'll be able to beat last year's win total by five or more. Here's those numbers on D'Angelo Russell before he got hurt. It's, it's a very small sample. It's only 12 games, but, um, and I'm doing per 36 minutes because Kenny Atkinson, basically since he's been in Brooklyn has been on this. He he really limits everybody. Oh, are you ready for this stat? No one in the two seasons that Kenny Atkinson has been in Brooklyn has ever played 30 minutes per game. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That that's always kind of jumped off the uh, screen when I look at Nets stats. He's he's very um, cautious with minutes. But anyway, the first 12 games before D'Angelo Russell went down for a while with an injury, he averaged 27.1 points, 7.4 assists. 6.1 rebounds and 1.3 steals per 36 minutes. Um, he was incredibly productive over the opening part of that season. And it took him a while to get his legs back under him, I think, after he uh, returned from that injury. But he, he had a fairly strong close to the season as well. I think there's still a ton of talent there. Um, and, and like we've both kind of outlined, they have a lot of talent all over the roster. I just, I still think. They're maybe a year or two away from pushing towards um, real competitiveness. And they don't have to be like truly competitive to beat 32 and a half. Um, and honestly, this, this is also par- partly a function of when I'm trying to pick over-unders, I don't want to pick too many overs or too many unders right, right. Um, because then you, you're, you're unbalanced league-wide. So that was part of it too. I Again... <laughs> I could go either way on this. I just barely came in on the underside with this one. Yeah, I think it's easy to go either way. One of the last things, though, that sold me is just their three-point volume. Only Houston attempted more threes per 100 possessions, and I think kind of that helps you make up for the talent variance in certain instances if you have guys who can actually hit threes. And you look at the roster, I think you could probably pick up to eight players who could end up hitting above the league average from three, and that could really help them. I don't know that all yeah. eight will get there, but, and you know what we haven't even, Shabazz Napier was a good signing too. They, they just have, they have guys in the backcourt, specifically at point guard who can get buckets with Napier mm-hmm. and Russell. They have just some good shooters with Crab and, and Harris. I'm still very interested in Travian Graham. I think Harris Levert is going to be a better shooter than he's shown. I'm very interested in this team. And again, it wouldn't surprise me if they end ah. up finishing below 30, a lot could depend on how they reacted to the trade deadline, but they're going to be a fascinating team to watch this year it was i think i told you maybe a couple episodes ago that i was trying to sort out the rotations for all 30 teams and the nets were pretty hard um yeah like i i almost forgot about shabbat napier being on this team until you just said it a few seconds ago there there are so many guys that you could make a case for needing rotation minutes on this team so maybe i'm i'm coming close to talking myself out of picking the under here because they they really are um 
I'm going to say loaded with talent, but it's not like super high end talent. They just they just have good players up and down the roster. My um, argument for you switching back to the over would be you need to pick the under for the Charlotte Hornets. How's that for a segue? <laughs> That's that one is tough for me too. Um, now I'm going to slow us down for a second. Do you do you have any thoughts on Janan Musa for the Nets? Their first round pick. No, I know literally nothing about him. He was super interesting to me because when I was doing a lot of draft prep, um, obviously a big part of the argument for Luka Doncic is that he was just incredibly productive for a teenager in the uh, Spanish ACB. Janan Musa was really productive for a teenager in the Adriatic League, which isn't, it's not the Spanish ACB, but it's still better than the NCAA um, competition, and he could flat out score. He's a guy, when I was going through the rotation, that it's really hard to find minutes for him this season. Uh, but I, I think he has potential to be pretty darn good. Um, not a lot of information to give you there other than the fact that he was just, it's, he had very impressive numbers for a kid his age in a professional basketball league. Um, all right, so now we'll move to the Hornets. And as you hinted, I have them over 35 and a half. And it's, <laughs> it's not one that I feel great about. And as I was doing this, I kind of thought, is this because I was higher on them last season? And I feel like I kind of got burned (laughs) by it. Um, I still like in theory, their starting lineup, especially if they move Nicholas Batum back to his natural position, which is the three. I I think the lineup of Kemba Walker, Jeremy Lamb, Nick Batum, Marvin Williams, and Cody Zeller has a chance to be, really strong. One of the things I thought when they got Dwight Howard last summer was that's that's not good because that's going to take away some of those Kemba Walker, Cody Zeller minutes. And they've been really good over the last few years when those two are on the floor together. So I think if they can stay healthy and do Kemba Walker for the whole season, I think something that you'll probably talk about. Um, I, I think they could comfortably get up to around 40 wins. So obviously a lot depends on health. Cody Zeller wasn't super healthy last year. Um, Nicholas Batum has had injury problems at various times in his career. But if they stay healthy and if they keep this group together, um, and, and there is a case for them to kind of blow it up. But if all those variables that I just laid out go my way, I'm, I'm going to be fairly comfortable <laughs> in the over. How's that for a hedge? That's a hell of a hedge. I went with the under. Part of why is because I do believe they'll eventually trade Kemba Walker because they won't be as good as they're hoping or as anticipated or even as they need to be. Their offseason has been just this large steaming pile of poo. When you look (laughs) at everything that they've done, you flip Dwight Howard to the Brooklyn Nets for extra wiggle room under the luxury tax. I think that deal at the time saved them about $7.8 million just in raw salary. It also cost them the number 45 pick that turned into Hamadou Diallo, who I actually like. And then Howard gave back nearly $5 million of his salary in a buyout with Brooklyn. And so was it worth it for them to save that $3 million and then lose out on a, you know, number 45 picks don't often turn into anything, but I, I, I'm just, that was just like a giant mind F to me. And so... (laughs) But then, then, because that's not enough, you proceed to give Tony Parker a multi-year deal because 
that Hell, move was interesting. What, what yeah. team doesn't need an over 36 backup point guard who, <laughs> FYI, has not been an offensive plus since 2014, 2015? That's the last time the Spurs were better offensively with him on the floor. And then you reacquire Bismack Biombo as an upgrade at the five, as sort of this hedge against. Um, uh, I don't Keller. even know if he should ever play, by the way. Right, but I think a lot of this has to do with you have Willie Hearn and Gomez, but can Cody Zeller stay healthy? There, I just and then to not like where is Travion Graham? Honestly, what what was? Maybe they just wanted minutes for Miles Bridges. That's that's like my only explanation for that one. That's not okay because (laughs) he's like the the league. Everyone wants more wings, and the Hornets basically said. Oh, here's this affordable 24-year-old wing who shot 41.2% from three and measured up defensively against some of the bigger and lankier assignments last year, and we don't want him. We're just, we're too talented. But no, STFU. That's what I have to say <laughs> about that. I am, I am so low You're on this so team. You're so passionate about the Hornets today. Right. I'm triggered about the Charlotte Hornets because that's what it has come to. It is the NBA in August, and I am, I am getting incensed over Charlotte. I don't think they're going to hit this. They do have talent. I like Batum defensively. Needs to turn the ball over less out of the pick and roll. M- MKG has almost become underrated because people just write him off since he's not necessarily an asset on offense. He's a good defender. Can be an okay cutter at times offensively. I just don't I, I don't like the setup of this team. You've basically said you're never going to play small because you have Kamitsky and you have Marvin Williams. And I don't know that I don't know that you have someone who can play small ball four minutes anyway. Maybe Miles Bridges. MKG. Marvin Williams is kind of a small ball four. No, Marvin Williams is a small ball five, and he should be playing uh, the five. Yeah. You're drinking again during this podcast <laughs> early in the morning. Those I, I think you could, I, I'm still going to qualify him as a small ball four, but I, that is a good point. It would be cool to see him play some five. Um, another guy who was, we, we've talked about a couple people who had good stretches of time last season. Another one is Malik Monk, who, this is going to be an even more limited sample um, than some of the other ones I've done. But over the last six games of the year, he averaged 19.8 points, shot 47% from the field and 40% from three. And one of the reasons it's such a small sample is because Steve Clifford just didn't play him. Um he was one of those old school coaches, and he even talked about this on a podcast. It might have been on Woj's pod a couple of months ago. He was, he was either that one or Zach Lowe. Um, but he, he flat out said that he's one of those guys who wants rookies to earn their playing time, and it wasn't until the very, very end of the season that he just decided to throw him out there. But he looked like he could score. Um, he only averaged one rebound over those six games, which isn't super encouraging. Um, but 20 points and four assists is good, especially with those shooting numbers. So I think he'll play more this year. Um, I don't. I don't really know. I don't feel very strongly one way or the other about Miles Bridges, but he's another guy who could be a solid wing for them. And Jeremy Lamb, I think, was was pretty darn. He was good. Good last season. Um, I was just looking at. I was going to look at some lineup data, but like we were saying before the podcast started, that it's being really slow on well, NBA Doc, but. Basically, over the last two or three years, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this without without being able to check it. Um, when Batum, Walker, and Zeller are on the floor, that's a solid team. And I think you can flesh out those other two spots with some of the younger wings that they have. 
I'm just incredibly low on this team. I don't have anything to add. The Parker signing miffed me. It is weird, yeah. The, because he could take away, Especially in theory. Because I think Malik Monk can play some backup one, too. Right, that was that was my thinking. And also, I know the offense was generally a hot mess last year when, when Walker stepped off the court, but the bench, after the All-Star break, ranked first in points scored per 100 possessions. I would have rather experimented with Let's give Jeremy Lamb some more of those responsibilities. Let's see if Nicholas Batum can finally be that guy. Let's use Malik Monk, as you said. I, before I get the mentorship thing, but Tony Parker seems like an objectively bad teammate. <laughs> and so that's I mean, he's been through a lot of battles, so I I guess I kind of get it, but th- there are some some truly weird stories with him as a teammate, that's for sure. Yeah, and I'm, weird I'm, might even be like a nice way of putting it. If they keep Walker, I could see them hitting the over. And on again, 35.5. And they could be a playoff team. They're in that weird territory. I just don't. This to me, and I think I might have said this last offseason, they have to cop to a rebuild at some point. They're not yeah. going to be good this year. It would, if if the Hornets are good, it would shock me. I'm going to say that right now. And I'm not trying to, you know, I... I'm not trying to just be like that, that person just be like, I don't hate the Hornets. I just don't, I don't see it with them. And it, I'm not sure what their direction is at this point. You hire a rookie head coach, but you put together this piecemealed veteran roster. I, the Hornets are confusing to me and I think it's going to show in their record. Um, All right. Let's speaking of a team that uh, you're probably not high on because I'm looking at your pick right now. Uh, the Chicago Bulls, their over-under is set at 27.5. I took the under. I'm going to let you uh, give your explanation first. I took the under as well, and I just don't. They're they're going to be playing a lot of young guys. We don't know how Zach Levine is going to mesh with Jabari Parker or how those two are going to mesh with Laurie Markkinen. The notion, or the fact, rather, that Jabari Parker is going to have to play a lot of three if you ever want him to share the court with both Markkinen and Wendell Carter Jr., that's just scary to me. We've gone over those numbers in past pods. The Bucks were never uh, a net plus with Jabari Parker at the three. And not only that, their best mark was with him at the three was like minus 2.7 points per 100 possessions. And I remember someone pointing that out to me on Twitter, like, well, that's only minus 2.7. Okay, well, minus 2.7 is still a minus. And that's that's a pretty comfortable minus too. <laughs> right. That's this is not. It wasn't like close to being just a, a net neutral type deal. I this team is going to be. I don't know what their point guard situation is going to look like. Chris Dunn showed some flashes last year, but even he kind of curtailed toward the end of the year. I still kind of, sort of, not really believe in Cameron Payne if he can stay healthy. You can have Zach Levine as your primary ball handler, but I think he showed in. Minnesota that he can't be that guy and my two primary issues for this squad why I'm low on them the first I have no real problem with they're going to be a bottom five defensive team and if they're not Fred Hoiberg should probably get at least one coach of the year vote yeah. uh, that's fine you're you have a bunch of younger guys Wendell Carter Jr. is going to be a good defender but maybe he struggles early on I thought marketing was a lot better defensively than I ever thought he was going to be in the first place including as as a rebounder as well but Parker at the three, those lineups are gonna they're they're gonna post league worst defensive ratings. And the second thing that really 
it kind of makes me uneasy about this team and something that I'm not willing to. This is like my stubborn, non-negotiable stance. They have a lot of these shot creators now. When you look at even what marketing can do, along with Parker and Levine, who aren't really great setup guys. You don't look at any one of their three primary shot creators and say, oh, they're going to make those around them better. And when you look at their point guard rotation, then you don't look at any of those guys and then say, oh, they'll fulfill that role. You know, Chris Dunn might be an okay game manager. That doesn't mean he's going to be this above average floor general. Cameron Payne probably falls into that same boat. Let me, (laughs) I want to just talk about Jabari Parker's uh, defense since you mentioned it a couple of times. then really, I just want to—he's not I'm paid sure to play of, defense. Let's just in his defense. In his defense, he's not paid to play I'm defense. Sure you've all heard this quote from Jabari Parker, but just in case you haven't, I don't know. I just stick to my strengths. Look at everybody in the league—they don't pay players to play defense. I'm not going to say that I won't, but to say <laughs> that it's a weakness is like saying that's everybody's weakness. I've scored 30s and 20s off of guys who they, who say they try to play defense. Certain guys have a scoring average, and no matter what you do, they still get that average. They pay people to score the ball, and I would hope that somebody scores the ball on me if they paid me if they paid them that much. Um, <laughs> some of his quotes this summer were like mind blowing to he me. He even tried to like explain it, and it was just like, nope, <laughs> no. So yeah. It, <laughs> When they played Jabari Parker at the three, who uh, I, I think as both of us have said, he's one of the few guys in the league that I think is just a one-position player at this point. He's he's just a power forward to me. Um, but you can't really put him there because you've got Laurie Markkinen, Wendell Carter Jr., Bobby Portis. These are all guys that need minutes in the front court. So you have to play Parker at the three. And like you said, those those lineups could get absolutely torched. Zach Levine isn't <laughs> a great defender himself. I, Chris Dunn and Wendell Carter are going to have to be incredible defensively for them to even be like a league average defense. Um, I'm with you. I'm still kind of there on Cameron Payne. I'm not ready to give up on him. I think he's had some nice stretches at various times in his career, and he's still fairly young. But really, the I, like I said, I went under on this too. I think they're probably a year or two away from competing. There's, there's a lot of players I like. Um, but if there's one aspect of this roster that I really like, it's the Lori Markin and Wendell Carter front court. And this, it's another one that I think it's just going to take a year or two before they are, are ready to fully commit to it. Like they're still going to try to find minutes for Bobby Portis. They're still going to try to find minutes for Robin Lopez, at least at the beginning of the season. Um, the Cristiano, the Cristiano Felicio ship has probably completely sailed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but if they get to a point like, I don't know, hopefully by the middle of the season when they're starting Markin and, and, and Wendell Carter, that's when this team will get interesting to me. But I don't think I don't think there's ever going to be a point when I feel like they're going to be pushing real hard for like 30 wins. So 27 and a half. Um, I mean, if everything hits perfectly, I could see them stop that. But stop. I yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with the under here. I hope Carter Jr. plays enough to contend for Rookie of the Year. I was too low on him coming out of the draft, and then his summer league, basically, you were high on him. His summer league really sold me. Yeah, his his college numbers were so interesting to me because 
for two or three years now, everybody has talked about what they want out of a modern big man. And it's the ability to shoot the ball, protect the rim, and pass. And I think those are three super important skills. And he checked all those boxes with his numbers at Duke. So his performance in Summer League was not super surprising to me. It was almost more confirmatory. So wow. I, I think that's a the, word. <laughs> is that even a word? I have no I idea. I think it should be the, uh, the day one starter at center. I, I, hope, I hope I didn't just make up a word. It appears to be a word. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, after the Bulls, you but now you have to make up a word. That's a new rule. You just make up one <laughs> word per podcast. <laughs> we are. This one was super tough for me. Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers at 30.5. I This probably just comes down to the question of, are they going to finish the season with Kevin Love slash George Hill slash Kyle Korver on the roster? Yeah. I went with over, and I don't really have much to say other than, even if they do trade Kevin Love, it's going to be in the 11th hour of the trade deadline. And by that point, you might have already just won too many games to not reach 31. That's my rationale for this team. And also, I don't want to spoil our end of podcast, like sum up of how we have the Eastern Conference shaping out seed wise. But this allowed me, by picking me over, basically allows me to put them in the 11 seed. And that really just feels like a good spot for this Cleveland team. Yeah, I think if they keep it together, like you just said, I, it wouldn't be hard for me to see them even being better than 500, which is obviously way better than the line at, at 30 and a half. Um, just objectively, a lineup of George Hill, Jer Smith, Kyle Korver, Kevin Love, and Larry Nance, that's, that's a decent lineup to me, especially in the Eastern Conference. I think they could beat up on some of these bad Eastern Conference teams. Um, but again, so much of it is dependent on <laughs> what they do. And I, I think Vegas is obviously baking that in to this number because if they lose Kevin Love, it's it's certainly a much, much different team. And at that point, even if they can't trade George Hill, they probably turn the reins over to Colin Sexton um, to see what they have with him. Um, I was Those two should be play. playing a bunch of minutes together, I feel like. They probably should because George Hill is super long and I, I think you can get away with him defending wings. So. They should they should probably be doing that from the start, but if they you know all these comments that have come out from that organization this summer that they still want to compete, um, if that's all true, I think we could see a lot more conventional lineups with with Colin Sexton getting the kind of minutes that a rookie gets on a good team. When in reality, I I think you and me are in agreement on this. They should they should just blow it up. Um, I don't even know if they should wait to the trade deadline. When I first heard about the Kevin Love extension, my first thought was, does this make him more of a trade target? Because now whatever team trades for him has him, you know, under contract for the next few years. It almost felt like the the Blake Griffin extension to me, that it was more of like we're we're just sort of sort of a move. Um, I don't know if that's what Cleveland's thinking, but I would not be at all surprised if that's what it ends up being. Um, so yeah, this one has it depends a lot on what happens with the roster, but I'm I'm going with the over as well for thirty and a half. Kevin Love's going to be interesting because if he plays well, you can probably flip him just because his salary peaks in year three, 
then it stays level. Well, not of the extension. So in year two of the extension, he'll have his highest salary. It stays level into year three, and then it declines by more than $2 million in year four. And maybe that, that structure might help. I, I honestly don't know. But you look at Smith, Hill, and Corver. Those are going to be three interesting trade chips for them. They're all on non-guaranteed deals for 2019-2020. Hill is he's making he's making 18 million dollars technically but only 1 million is guaranteed. JR Smith has 3.9 of his 15.7 million dollar salary guaranteed guaranteed and Kyle Korver has 3.4 million of his 7.5 million dollar salary guaranteed. Uh they could I I picked the over but I could easily see this just being like a disaster. The one thing not the one thing since I said a bunch of things but if Sam Decker and JR Smith and Jordan Clarkson start getting minutes over Chetty Osman, there's going to be an angry Danfa Valley on Twitter <laughs> this NBA season. He should play. Um, That's a, can we stop the podcast there? Chetty Osman, he should play. He should play. <laughs> that should be the new tagline. Did you hear the podcast with Windhorst? Uh, again, I'm not going to remember exactly whose podcast he was on, but he was saying something like, Cleveland might be lucky to get a first-round pick. For Kevin Love, um, which kind of jives with some stuff that we've talked about. The superstar returns are always, almost like invariably, less than we kind of anticipate them to be. Like even the Kawhi Leonard trade, um, I think people have various feelings about DeMar DeRozan. But I think, you know, six months ago, we probably would have thought that Kawhi Leonard would fetch more than he did for the Spurs. It, it's just a running theme in the NBA now. Um, if, if all it takes is a first rounder and maybe like one interesting prospect to get Kevin Love, that's, that seems very, very doable for a few teams to me. Oh, I'm with you. That, the, the, I don't know if Utah would still want to consider it, but building something around Derek Favors in it's the middle still, of the year. That deal is still very interesting to me. Like if, if, if it, if Windhorse is right. And Cleveland's going to be lucky to get a first. Um, favors and a first for Love is super, super interesting. Favors obviously isn't really like a young, interesting prospect, like I just said, but he's an expiring deal. Um, that two-year contract he signed this summer, the second year, is is not guaranteed. So that could help Cleveland shed a ton of money if they wanted to do something like that. So that's really interesting to me. And I, I, I don't know if there's a center that would be better uh, more tailor-made to play with Kevin Love than Rudy Gobert. No, I don't think there would be. And, I mean, you pair basically Favors and Cephalosha at that point, plus whatever picks you try and broker in there, like that gets the deal done. Yeah. I'm all for it. Um, I, I'm, I'll probably post that Kevin Love video of him saying Park City, Utah is his favorite city in America at some point during the season, too. I think once we get to December, you should post it once a day. That Yeah, that needs to be – I was going to say that needs to be annual, but I think I'm with you. That's probably better if it's a daily thing. Um, Detroit Pistons, 37.5. I That's took the over. Detroit Pistons over-under, by the way. <laughs> what say you? I picked, I picked the over, too. They're just – they have a lot of – well, I shouldn't say a lot, but they have talent. I, I, I don't – I just – do they have enough spacing? They have some guys who can shoot, but when you play Drummond, Griffin, Jackson, you can. There can they ever play those three plus Stanley Johnson at the same time? 
They will. I don't think they should. <laughs> they will. <laughs> I don't think they should. The there's just not enough of a sample for for me to go off of because when Jackson came back, Blake Griffin essentially left the lineup at that point. They played like it was under 50 minutes together or something crazy like that. They need Reggie Bullock to shoot 44.5% from beyond the arc again. Luke Kennard needs to play more. Uh, in the 44 minutes, though, that the Pistons played with Drummond, Griffin, and Jackson last year, they were 9 of 29 from 3 for 31%. And so spacing is going to be an issue for them. We have the obvious health questions with not only Blake Griffin, but can Reggie Jackson stay healthy for the entire season? Because you want his first step. You need him to be at least semi-mobile on the defensive end as well. Someone who's going to play a huge role in determining this over-under is going to be Glenn Robinson the third because that's where he's, you're kind of yeah it's interesting to me that extra spacing comes from I mean and he's supposed to be more switchy for you on defense and you don't have a bunch of that switchitude maybe I just made up a word switchitude <laughs> in the first all right court. we we got our one made up word for the yeah, podcast with, with Drummond and Blake Griffin and it would be nice if you could play Robinson and Stanley Johnson together um, and if the uh, something else too. They've experimented with Stanley Johnson as a pick-and-roll ball handler. It has not gone well, for the most part. But if you can put him in there, and then you're able to play Bullock and Glenn Robinson III with Griffin and Drummond, that might be an interesting look. I don't think you look at Robinson or Bullock and say, oh, those are guys who can match up with the bigger wings. But Stanley Johnson should be able to. And that might be yeah. just that might just be something interesting for them to try. Stanley Johnson down the line, or maybe he already is this, one of those guys who can guard one through four, and maybe even like in some lineups, one through five. Um, but you gotta, you got to figure some things out with him like you laid out. I guess with him on the ball, I, I can't remember who it was that wrote the article about Giannis maybe two or three years ago, that just him having the ball was, was gravity. The fact that he couldn't shoot was kind of negated because you have to guard the guy that has the ball. So maybe if Stanley Johnson is running the pick and rolls and you have it flanked by Bullock and Robinson or Bullock and Kennard, <clears throat> that's, you can maybe get away with that. But my favorite lineup for this team is Drummond and Griffin, who th they played almost 600 minutes together last season. And the Pistons had a plus three net rating when those two shared the floor. So that worked um, just having those two. But if it's those two guys and then Kennard, Bullock and Glenn Robinson as your other three. That's that's my favorite Pistons lineup. I really hope they get to it, um, not just at points this season, but like consistently. Because I think if you're going to have a front court of Griffin and Drummond, you you have to get as much shooting on the floor as possible, and then you just let you let Griffin run the pick and rolls. I mean, he's incredible as a passer, and some of those Blake Griffin, um, DeAndre Jordan pick and rolls with the Clippers were just unguardable. I remember even a couple playoff series where they just ran that over and over and over. And there's no way uh, for opposing front courts to defend that. So I think if you have, if you run that and you surround it with as much shooting as possible, I think that's the Avenue for them having a decent offense this season. Um, but <laughs> like you said, there's a bunch of guys on this roster that probably need minutes too and they're just that they're not shooters so if they play a ton of minutes with those two 
and Reggie Jackson and Stanley Johnson, um, unless they make huge strides as shooters between last season and, and this one, it, it's hard. I'm happy with offense. And they, even after I say all that, I still have them over 37 and a half wins. I, and I think Dwayne Casey helps them too. I think he's, he's really grown a lot as a coach over the last few years. And hopefully what he saw from the Raptors who kind of, you know, adopted the three point revolution finally this season will push him towards playing some of the lineups that are like the one that I laid out. You need to just, if you're going to play those two big guys together, you have to have them surrounded by shooting. Right. And it would help them a great deal if Blake Griffin, he, I don't think he'll ever be the off the dribble face up three point guy, but if he can get to above league average on threes on yeah. fair volume, he was close last year. Or yeah, I was going to say, even if he's close, just enough to make offenses, or I mean, uh, I think you want him above the 35% per- threshold, though. He was yeah. at 34.5 I mean, last year. Uh, I mean, on 5.6 attempts per game, uh, which is, again, that's probably 5.9 attempts per 36 minutes. That's a good around six, maybe seven if you could push it. If he could get to 35%, 36%, that would be, around league average would be huge for them, just because it's going to be tough to find spacing elsewhere. Uh, do you know what um, Stanley Johnson shot out of the pick and roll last year? <laughs> Effective field goal percentage, I'll say. I'll say, jeez, uh, 35. Wow, you were close, 34.2. <laughs> the well, thing I'll say I, is I, encouraging is he doesn't turn the ball over a ton relative to some guys who run pick and rolls, and that will that will help. Uh, the the other thing that I didn't really realize and didn't pick up on, they experimented a lot with Luke Kennard as a pick and roll ball handler last year. Eighty seven possessions. I I think he's I think he has a chance to be pretty good. I've said he's a solid NBA player, but people are all I don't know why they didn't play him in the first place enough when they needed all that spacing. He, but people are always just going to remember that Donovan Mitchell went after him. Yeah, that's true, which is unfair to him. Stan Van Gundy is another one of those coaches who I think has come out and said that he's. You know, he's old school and he wants rookies to earn their playing time. Well, it's good that he hasn't worked there any longer because that, that take is terrible. Yeah, I agree. Um, the only players in NBA history who are 6'10 or taller and average more assists per possession than Blake Griffin, Tom Borwinkle, an Andy Bailey favorite, uh, Nikola Jokic, another Andy Bailey favorite, <laughs> Tony Kukoc, Andy Bailey favorite, Sam Lacey, and then uh, there's Blake Griffin, fifth. He even averages more assists per possession than Yanni Antetokounmpo. Um, hmm. So Blake Griffin, he can he can run plenty of sets for this team. Um, I, I think we've kind of talked in circles on this, but it just depends on how much shooting you can get out there with those two guys. I'm with you. Uh, that All right, us Indiana to, Pacers. Would you like a spoiler? I changed my. I, I just changed my pick. Don't think I didn't see that. <laughs> they are at 47.5. My pick is now the same as yours. And your pick is? I've got the Pacers over. Um, what a, what a difference. For anyone who knows all that. <laughs> what a difference a year makes for this team. Uh, I don't, when, did the, when did the Paul George trade happen? Was it around this time or was it earlier? It was literally just before free agency started. So uh, when that trade was made... <laughs> Me and I, I think just about every other NBA analyst was was just out <laughs> on the Pacers for the next couple years. Um, maybe that's putting it too harshly, but 
they certainly did better with that trade than I think anybody expected. Victor Oladipo um, was incredible last season. I don't, you know, I don't know what else can be said about him. He was an All NBA player, uh, probably top fifteen to twenty player in the league last season, maybe even better than that. Five thirty eight projects him to be twelfth in wins above replacement player next season. Um, so they have a top fifteen to twenty guard now, and I think pairing him with Tyreek Evans. And I hope those two play a ton of minutes together. Makes that team even more dynamic offensively. Uh, Miles Turner had a little bit of a down year, I feel like, last season. But I'm still not out on him. I, there, there's a lot of talent here. But I think what it mostly comes down to with me, um, and I don't know if I said the line. It's at 47.5. We both have them over. Um, they just have an elite talent at the top now. And I, I don't think I thought that. <laughs> Last summer, I was obviously wrong, but that's that's a big part of predictions for me. Is is who is your top tier guy, and they have one. I agree with everything you kind of said there. They have, I think, I, I was, I'm with you on Miles Turner too. I wonder if if he could get more touches, or maybe just put him in more pick and pops, even more so than they did last year. If that would help his stock a little bit, I think he's almost become underrated defensively, though. He's m- more mobile than people. Mm-hmm give him credit for. I don't think he's ever going to be this stymieing rim protector, but he's not supposed to be Rudy Gobert and he can change shots. His timing's a little off, but he can change a bunch of shots. And I still, I still really like him. My main concern for this team, and I'm in on Victor Oladipo. I got, I caught some shit from Pacers fans for something I wrote that said, we need to, you know, this was one year of him being a top 15, top 20 player. We need to see if he can repeat it. I don't know what, exactly he's going to look like this year I do think what we saw from him last season is closer to the real Victor Oladipo than not so I'm in on Victor Oladipo but I think it's fair to say this team won 48 games when you kind of put it too kindly when you said well maybe they might have been out on the Pacers for a couple years or maybe that's too harsh no that's exactly what happened after this (laughs) deal and so I think it's fair to just question that sustainability my main concern though is what is this team going to look like defensively they were eighth in points allowed per 100 possessions after the all-star break and i think thaddeus young has quickly turned into one of the most underappreciated defenders in the league he's just suffocating at both forward spots essentially i don't know that they really have a, a lockdown wing defender though doug mcdermott he needs to play more four than three. He's going to be a defensive minus either way. He does try, though. Bless his heart. He does try. <laughs> Tyreek Evans can probably be an even defender on his best nights. But my whole thing is you look at him, you look at Bogdanovich. Like, this is Tyreek Evans is Tyreek Evans. Boyan Bogdanovich is Boyan Bogdanovich. Their best case scenarios defensively are not guarantees. And I think the Pacers have just enough perimeter utility to get by defensively. I don't believe that they have more than that. And so if you cake in a potentially below average or just an average defense, they're really going to need their offense to hit this year. And they they struggled offensively to close the season. Nate McMillan also dropped this weird quote about LeBron leaving the East. Thinks that uh, he thinks that there's going to be more of these like just dual big plotting lineups and I hope he wasn't specifically referring to the Pacers because that would be absolutely terrible. Yeah. That would Well, they have 
they have a lot of bigs. This is another team that was kind of hard to figure out the rotation for because Kyle O'Quinn and Damana Sabonis are both good, and they should both be playing center. <laughs> they can't play. Turner and Sabonis cannot play together. Kyle O'Quinn is, I guess he's a bridge, but he shouldn't be playing the four either. He The Knicks didn't let him shoot threes, and he has three-point range, but that's not someone you look at and say, oh, he can play with either of those bigs automatically. Maybe he can. I don't think he can, but you your fours should really be McDermott and mm. Thaddeus Young. Maybe even you want to get some small ball four minutes for Bogdanovich if you can. But they can't because you look at their yeah. chart. And and yet we still have them as the over. Uh, that says a yes. lot about the Eastern Conference. I think it says Tyreek Evans was good last year. Pairing him with Depot is incredible. Collison led the league in three-point percentage. Corey Joseph is a defensive bulldog. It'll be intriguing to see whether Aaron Holiday gets any minutes this year. I do still like the Pacers, but I, I'm, in, I'm miffed at how they're going to defend. I have one last thing on the Pacers before we move on. Um, Victor Oladipo, his box plus minus and his win shares per 48, was on a very um, sort of tidy upward curve every year he was in the league. Until you get to that OKC season, it just drops off a cliff, and then it shoots way up this year with Indiana. And <laughs> nobody saw that, but I did like a hand motion for way up. Um, <laughs> anyway, if you just remove the OKC year, or if you plug in like what the natural progression would have been, I don't think this Indiana season would have been quite as surprising. Like he was on his way to this point. It was just that sort of random detour with OKC that I think really changed the perception on him and is, is one of the reasons he was such a huge surprise this year. But if you if you sort of just look at the trend line of his advanced numbers, he was well on his way to this kind of player. So I think it's reasonable for us to expect that he'll at least stay, if not at this level, close to it. In Indiana, and if he if he takes another step forward, then then Indiana being over forty seven and a half um, would be pretty comfortable because another step forward from what he was last year is, you know, easily one of the top ten players in the league. So I feel fairly confident in the Pacers being over. Um, the next team I, I have absolutely zero confidence in <laughs> my pick, which is the Miami Heat. 41 and a half. I took the under. I feel terrible about it. So I'm going to let you uh, talk about them first. They're a tough team to pick because they didn't make any upgrades this year. And 41. This is like the quietest offseason I can remember for any team. Because they had no money and they have no tradable contracts. That is a terrible combination. Tyler Johnson officially making more than Goran Dragic. 41.5, though, I just feel between Eric Spoelstra, some of the guys on this roster who I really like, Wayne Ellington, Dragic himself, Josh Richardson, who will probably be their best player by the end of the year. Bam Adebayo is good. James Johnson is still a, a good utility player as well. Kelly Olynyk had a good year. I, I don't really know. I don't have a feel for the roster necessarily, and they do seem to need more off-the-dribble pizzazz outside of Dragic. Josh Richardson looked like he might be that guy in the playoffs, but the Heat had one player who shot one pull-up jumper per game last year while also posting an effective field goal percentage 
better than 45 and it was Wayne Ellington. And that, that's a problem because he, that's oh, not yeah. his role. So, um, I, I, they didn't address that. And that's going to be, you need Tyler Johnson to take a step forward or you need just these Winslow to take a step forward or you need Josh Richardson to kind of blossom into this star to really be relevant in the East. I have no idea what's going on with Hassan Whiteside. He said he had a four yeah. hour meeting with Spo and Pat Riley who knows how well that went. I don't know that the heat can trade him. He's owed 52.5 million over the next two years player option on that final season. They're not getting off that money without one, including sweeteners. They really don't have when you look at how their 2021 first round pick is now owed to Philadelphia, or they're going to have to take back bad money and they have enough bad money on their books. They're, their their ledger it's made up of bad deals and market value deals they don't have any bargains on this team maybe josh richardson turns into one but you need to hit good for the players for getting their bag but the whole point of free agency is you do need to get these good value signings and the heat have zero they have zero now and that that's going to be a big issue What's going to happen with Justice Winslow? They probably won't sign him to an extension. Do they trade him? Do they let it ride into restricted free agency? They're they're kind of a mess, but I do think that being led by Spoelstra, we know that they're going to defend really hard. Their offense maybe won't be great, particularly with the return of Dion Waiters if he's healthy, but we could probably count on them to be a top eight, top 10 defensive team, and that'll be enough to get them into the playoffs in the East doesn't say much for their 41.5 over under, but I could see them just getting 43 wins, a win, a win less than last year. And that's just where I'm at with them. Yeah. I took the under and my thought was I could see them going 41 and 41. So just barely under Um, probably the East. They they epitomize mediocrity right now. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I still have them getting into the playoffs, um, which again, it's, it's, that makes sense for the East that a 41 and 41 team would still get into the playoffs. Um, I agree with, with basically everything you said, and there is a lineup on this team that is interesting to me. I just don't know how often they can get to it. Uh, Dragic, Ellington, Richardson, Johnson, and Olenek. I, I think that's objectively the five that they should probably start games with and, and play as much as they can with. I just don't know if they will. Uh, one thing that scares me about Miami <clears throat> is <laughs> minutes for Dion Waiters and Hassan Whiteside, especially if they're together. Um, <laughs> I just, I don't think they're going to help very much. And I think that's going to drag down their ceiling a little bit. Dion Waiters, I, I was looking this up um, as we were talking about the heat. He was drafted in 2012. And so players with at least 5,000 minutes since then, uh, there's 286 of those players. Waiters is 271st in box plus minus. Um, He's a player who's just been objectively hurtful for almost every team he's been on. And he still has this reputation as a guy who helps. I just don't think he helps. And I think he's going to get solid rotation minutes. And I think that's going to hurt the heat. And I think Whiteside, I'm not ready to say that he like object objectively hurts a team. um, But I'm close. (laughs) His his reputation has never. I mean, his his real production has never quite measured up to his reputation in my mind. And now, if he's unhappy 
with his role and he certainly was at the end of last season maybe they sorted it out with that meeting that you referenced but that that situation could become even more sour um but you have these lineups that are almost like tailor-made for modern basketball uh bam Adebayo is a much better modern center i think than hosan Whiteside, just because he can defend better on the perimeter and i think he's he's a little bit more multifaceted as an offensive player i think even james johnson could log some minutes at the five and they could have some really interesting roster or lineups there like if you had justice winslow at the four and johnson at the five it's just that they have these huge money players in waiters and, and Whiteside that are gonna command minutes and i just that's that's what's dragging them down to me but even if they win 40 or 41 games, I'm still fairly confident they're getting into the playoffs. That is any Bailey's ringing endorsement of the Miami Heat. <laughs> even if they suck, they'll probably still be a playoff team. Um, that brings us to the Milwaukee Bucks. And we have another difference of opinion here. I have the Bucks going over 46 and a half. Justify it for me. Giannis Antetokounmpo. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> I, I think there's a very real chance that he's the best player in the Eastern Conference next season. I think I think that largely has to do with what Kawhi Leonard looks like. If he's fully healthy and if he's like 2016-17 Kawhi Leonard, then I think we have sort of a two-horse race at the top for, for best player in the East. But Giannis is certainly going to be in that conversation. Um, I think maybe it's not necessarily like clear addition by subtra- uh, subtraction with Jabari Parker, but... I think a guy like Ersan Ilyasova might complement Giannis better than Jabari does. Um, they'll have they'll have their Giannis Chris Middleton minutes, um, Bledsoe for a full season. Hopefully Brogdon's healthy um, and and is the starting two for that team. I think Brook Lopez is going to be <laughs> good for them. I, I think his stock was down after this season with the Lakers because he didn't play as much. But the reason he didn't play is because he was on the Lakers and they were trying to get minutes for all these young guys. I think he's a really interesting pick and pop option with Giannis. Um, and then hanging over all of this is the fact that they now have coach bud who it's maybe not the kind of leap that golden state took when they switched from, and it's probably not uh, that kind of leap when they switched from Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr, but this is still, uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a big jump from Jason Kidd and Joe Prunty to Mike Budenholzer. So there, there's a lot going in the right direction for the Bucks to me, and I think they could even get up over 50 wins. And I'm I would not be shocked if they crash like the top three, top two party in the East. It wouldn't surprise me if they did that. I just they're very top heavy, and I like the fits offensively with Brook Lopez and Ersan Ilyasova. I do think Ilyasova will allow those Giannis at the five lineups, and I'll put those in air quotes, to exist um, it, with more frequency because you can look at both of them as the five in that scenario. And, and Ilyasova, not a great defender, but he's a much better defender than Jabari Parker, who the only defense I've really ever seen him play was, was He'll at least coach try. Yeah. yeah. And I just, they had, they allowed more looks at the rim uh, than any other team last year they were according to cleaning the glass they were 25th in corner three-point defense and 24th in three-point defense overall I don't uh, some of that was scheme and I think buttonholes will have them funnel fewer ball handlers to the rim because they don't have that just 
barrier, like a Rudy Gobert there. You don't want that to happen. But they didn't do anything to address that either. Henson, Maker, uh, Ilyasova, Brooke Lopez, those guys aren't fantastic shot blockers. Even having Giannis Antetokounmpo as a primary rim protector is problematic if you're doing it for long stretches. And their defense should be better, but they were second to last in defensive rebounding rate last year. And again, I don't know that they did anything to really address that uh, this year. Uh, Ilias Overbrook Lopez probably helped a tick. I just don't know how much. And they've been underachieving for so long. Maybe I didn't factor in enough of the Buttonholzer effect, but they seem like a 45-win team to me. And that we're going to be talking about, oh, what do they do next summer when... Eric Bledsoe and Middleton and Brogdon are, are all free agents. I feel like this is going to be one of our best ones to to pay attention to because it sounds to me like this is maybe our biggest disagreement so far. Um, it's it's weird because I could see them party crashing the Eastern Conference Eastern Conference, excuse me, contention conversation. I just are are they deep enough? Are they going to have a good enough defense? There are just too many questions there. For me, and and to that end, it really came down to do, which team do I think is more likely to be elite this year, Milwaukee or Indiana? And I just felt I don't think it's going to be both of them. I just felt like Indiana deserved the edge. And that's yeah, that's fine. Um, I'm, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep a tab on that one. Maybe we'll put a friendly wager on the bucks between us. Um, All right, but- if I win, you have to go on Twitter and tweet that Joe Ingles cannot defend a three-toed sloth. Um, that will never happen. And you know that darn well. Uh, New York Knicks, Dan's beloved New York Knicks, future home of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Um, but unfortunately their, their future players do not play into this year's over under, which is set at 29 and a half. And uh, I took the under, and I'm going to let you take this one first. They have Trey Burke. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> no. uh, Trey Burke was good to finish the year uh, last season. I have him at under. He was and it, really good. Yeah, if they're he, not, but first of all, his mid-range percentage was like a zillion. That's not sustainable. People need to chill out. My whole thing is if they finish with more than 29 wins, they've done something wrong. You're not going to have Porzingis for at least half the year. You're not starting a replacement level player anywhere. Anywhere. If you whether it's Neil Aquina or Burke, whether it's Tim Hardaway Jr., well, if you start Courtney Lee over Tim Hardaway Jr., then maybe you get a replacement level player, but they won't do that. is not there. Lance Thomas isn't there. Porzingis again isn't healthy. Kevin Knox, maybe he's there, but rookies are always touch and go. Maybe I'm being too hard on Enos Cantor if you're gonna make him the starting five. I just if they're doing this rebuild right, they should be experimenting like crazy. I'm talking Frank Nielakina at the three in certain lineups with maybe Trey Burke and Kadeem Allen or Trey Burke and Emmanuel Moutier. Uh, I just... Lance if you want to go under, play Emmanuel Moutier. Yeah, that's what I'll say. And if, if, I don't think David Fisdale will do this, and I want them to develop Nielakina more on the ball, I'm okay with them not doing that. If you're going to have him be an off guard or maybe play a bunch of two, three in these smaller lineups and make sure that he gets playing time. That is fine. If it gets to a point where Trey Burke and Moody are getting minutes at the expense of Frank Nielakina, that will also make for an angry Dan on Twitter. 
I'm going to yeah. go to that advance. They need to get off of Tim Hardaway Jr.'s contract, too. I'm not going to regurgitate the stats that I dropped. I think it was the last podcast or the one before that. But if they want to enter the Kevin Durant sweepstakes, they need to. Sh- the best way to do that is to have room for more players other than him. And to do that, you not only need to get rid of Noah, you need to get rid of Tim Hardaway Jr. And I'm glad he got his money. Good for him. But that contract is objectively terrible. Three years and 50-plus million dollars left on it. It's really going to hamper the rebuild. And I don't see him being a good long-term piece for this team. I just don't see him holding up defensively against starters. Don't think he can really help you as a pick and roll ball handler. He's not, he'll attempt pull up jumpers. I don't think he's the guy that you want really carrying your offense off the dribble. Their season's going to be interesting because how much developmental stock are they going to place in him? That invariably comes at the expense of some of their younger guys. If you look at it, could come at the expense of Azonia, this one year flyer who's yeah. uh, probably a better prospect to me than Tim Hardaway Jr. I'll say that. So, They'll be interesting if they win more than 30 games, though they have failed. Hazonia is really interesting to me, too. I think my ideal lineup for them, and it, it can't even happen till the end of the season because that's when Porzingis will be back, if he's back at all. But Hazonia and Kevin Knox as sort of interchangeable combo forwards and Porzingis at the five. Um, I, I think that's their peak offensive potential that maybe that's putting a lot on Kevin Knox who's just a rookie and was really inefficient in summer league but I I would I would really love to see lineups like that and I don't know if that's something that they'll even do long term because I Mitchell Robinson is really interesting to me too he looked ridiculous in summer league and there was there was a lot of talk about him before the draft that you know a year or two ago when when he was being scouted as a high school player he was right up there with guys like DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley. It was just the fact that he sat out a year that really hurt his stock. So they may have gotten a huge deal with Mitchell Robinson, and and that could still be a solid front court, Porzingis and Robinson in the future. But I just I'm still dying to see lots of Porzingis at the five minutes because I think that's where he hits his max potential. Um, oh, with Knox at the four, that would be fantastic. I hope. Yeah, I think Knox. I think Knox and Hazonia are both fours, and I w- I'm kind of willing to compromise on that by just saying that they're both forwards, and they'll they'll do essentially the same things in a smart modern offense. Yeah, but I think you could say the same thing though. Lance Thomas is probably a four. Uh, it's just that's what this team is kind of made up of. Is just a lot of guys. I don't. I think you can play Thomas and Hazonia at the three. I just don't know that that's their best position. And then when you talk about Porzingis and Knox and Cantor and Robinson and Luke Cornett, who's obviously the goat, it just it gets a little, uh, it, it gets a little log jammy. I will say I hope that, and I don't think they will, just because you have Trey Burke, you have Tim Hardaway Jr., you have Hazonia. I would love to see Kevin Knox while Porzingis is out just get this unconditional green light. I know he was inefficient in summer league, but watching the way he was working he- off the dribble. It just seemed like he had a better feel for the game than just this guy who's going to finish in transition or maybe turn into a good spot up shooter and, and rim runner. I want I, I want to see more of that. This is the year that you're not going to be good. Like give him the ball and, and let him go. See if he can lead even more of these end to end breaks. I don't know that you want him necessarily as your half court creator all the time, but try it. And I'm hoping that they do. Yeah, I think he should get that green light for sure. Um, before we move on. Do you want to guess where Trey Burke finished in offensive box plus minus 
among players who had at least as many minutes as him last season. How many players is that? Uh, players who played at least as many minutes as Trey Burke in 2017-18 is going to be, I'm talking very slowly to let basketball reference load for me, um, it's over 300. 306 players. I'm going to say since it took you a little while to scroll that he's on the first page. So, <laughs> uh, 50th. 15th. What? <clears throat> yeah. I don't know why I'm squeaking. But <laughs> The only players who had a better offensive box plus minus than Trey Burke last year um, and played as many minutes. Stephen Curry, James Harden, Damian Lillard, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, Chris Paul. Kyle Lowry, Kemba Walker, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, Jay Butler, Kevin, Orlando, Anthony Towns. That's that's Trey Burke had a yeah. Trey Burke had a better offensive box plus minus than Giannis Antetokounmpo, Lou Williams, Victor Oladipo, Lamarcus Aldridge, Devin Booker. Um, I could go on and on and on. Here, <laughs> here's this is okay. Wow, here's my thing. He took almost 30% of his shots came as long twos, which is too many. And yeah. he shot 56.6% on them. That is never going to happen again. That is just objectively unsustainable. Yeah, he shot from that same range in the first four years of his career. He shot 41.7%. Which actually isn't bad. but it's Yeah, it's solid. But a 15% jump is massive. Right, and I, I also, I'm just curious to see, like, what is his value as, like, an off-the-dribble three-point shooter? Because that's what you need to do to be a point guard in today's league, essentially, is you need to hit these off-the-dribble threes. And I don't I don't see him as that, as that guy, necessarily. And I don't want his, his development to come at the expense of Frank Neokina. I'd rather yeah. see, if they can play the two together then that's fine. But it's, I don't know. Trey Burke last year in New York, though, did look this up, very small sample, shot 38.5% on off-the-dribble threes when he was using between three and six dribbles. Only attempted 13 of them. But if he can be that I, guy, then maybe he could play. But I don't know how anything he gives you on the offensive end, he gives more than that back on the defensive end. Generally speaking, although last year was the first time in his career he had a plus box plus minus he was he was 4.2 offensive and minus 3.2 defensive um which was a net plus one obviously okay okay so here's my what was the Knicks's defensive rating with him on the court last year do you have it pulled up oh i have it pulled up i'm gonna say 112 114.2 <laughs> emmanuel yeah, moody 116.2 what what was it when he was on or uh off when he was, they weren't a good defensive team last year. But when he was off the court, they were one hundred six point seven, which is they were one hundred eight point four overall. That's fine. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's still. I mean, he's going to be a negative defensively. But I also, I will say well, but this. But here's here's my problem then, though, is that their offensive rating with him on the court was fireball-y. So one hundred and ten point four. They were still a net minus because the defense yeah. was so bad. Um. I so after. He left Utah, and and even more so after Washington. I wasn't sure he could be in the NBA. I, I will at least say that he's changed my perception on him with his stint with the with the Knicks. I I feel fairly confident in saying that he could be 
at least a solid backup point guard. But like you said, I don't. That's that's not enough to say he should be stealing all these developmental minutes from guys like Frank Nilakina. So I'm I'm with you there. Um. So after our tangent on Trey Burke, that brings us to the Orlando Magic. Thereof we're under a set at thirty one and a half. Um. I took the under this lineup. Uh, I feel like I've said this about two or three teams now, but I just feel like it's still probably a few years away. They have interesting players in the front court to me. Um, I, I was pretty high on Mo Bamba. I still like the idea of an Aaron Gordon, Jonathan Isaac front court. Um, Evan Fournier is a solid player, but there's really no one that's super exciting as a young prospect in the back court. Um, Really, their only youngish guard, as I'm looking at this depth chart, is Jerry and Grant. And he, he's not super exciting to me. Um, Vucevic, it's almost like they're just kind of waiting out the clock on his contract <laughs> so they can, they can turn things over to Bamba and Isaac and Gordon and maybe have that be sort of their three-man big rotation of the future. The, the lineup, or this roster is still kind of weird to me. This one is... You know, at 31 and a half, this is one of those that was, I said most of these were agonizing. This one's fairly easy for me to say under. Yeah, I went under as well. Their offense is going to be terrible. It could be close to the worst offense in the league. When you just look at how many, just how many, I don't, like, who's their score? Outside of Infornia, who's the guy that's going to score? Vucevic. Yeah, but how often is he going to play when you have all this front court talent? Yeah, you've got to get minutes for those young guys. And your your point guards are Jerry and Grant, DJ Augustine, Jonathan Simmons is probably going to spend some time at point guard. There, but again, there are some interesting defensive combinations they can run. Last year, Gordon and Isaac played 276 possessions together, according to Cleaning the Glass, and all of them were spent with another big on the floor and the magic's defensive rating in, in that situation ranked in the 99th percentile 95.2 it's a small sample but i think it proves that you can play bomba with those two and be fine defensively what is your offense going to look like though and aaron yeah. gordon is overrated in that department they try they've tried to turn him into this face-up guy he's just not it his three-point percentage while a career high last year wasn't great, and it was also inflated by that hot start that both yeah. and the Magic enjoyed. If and you take out those first 10 games, the three-point percentage was terrible last year. It was basically at like 30% or under 30% or something like yeah. that. I don't know, where's your secondary offense coming from? Hell, where's your primary offense coming from? Evan Fournier is going to get his buckets, but is he the guy that's going to make those around him better? You can have him run some pick and roll, but he he just shouldn't be that that primal half court setup guy. And that's really, that, that's really going to be a, a problem for them. And I, I get they're young and that's fine that they're rebuilding. They're not really, especially young, actually, when you look at this roster, but no, especially their guards they they have very little in terms of young, exciting prospects in, in their guards and wings. They just don't have, maybe their future front court is set. I don't. I don't even. I just don't know. And are you really going to develop Isaac as a three now? Because you want him to yeah, share the court. Like, it's weird. Because if you don't, then you're saying that I that he's going to come off the bench because Gordon and Bamba, those are your long term pieces at the four and five. I I would think. 
they're I, I get I just repeating myself now their offense if it's better than bottom five I applaud Steve Clifford <laughs> yeah I th- I'm fairly comfortable in going on the ender with this one um let's jump to the 76ers who are at 54 and a half and I I think the 76ers are going to be really good but um I I'm gonna go with the under. I'm gonna go with the one. I'm gonna go with the under too. Fifty five wins is a lot. I don't think it's an insult. Yeah. You lost. I I the additions of Ilyasova and Bellinelli were kind of overrated last year, uh, particularly Bellinelli. But he was bad in the postseason, but he helped them during the regular season. They need that other guy, other than JJ Redick, who can take these just really quick threes when after moving a bunch off the ball. I don't, they don't like Robert Covington's a great spot up shooter. He's not someone you want to get going in a ton of motion. And even if he is, even if you say that Dario Saric is going to be that guy and he was great last year, there needs to just be more spacing because you're going to work with at, at any given point, if you're playing Embiid and Simmons together, you're going to have two non-spacers on the floor. And I don't know that they can as readily field lineups that have the other three shooters to pick up the slack. You have the Saric, Redick, Covington crutch. And that lineup last year was basically the best high-volume lineup in the league. But where is that supplementary shooting coming from on this roster? Uh, Wilson Chandler might be a league average shooter from deep in this situation. That's, I, are you know, are we counting on Shake Milton? Uh, is, is, is Zaire Smith even going to play this year after suffering his foot injury? T.J. McConnell isn't a good shooter. Markel Fultz could be the the guy that tips the scales in this discussion for me. I'm not saying the Sixers are going to be really good. I just don't think that we... I think that there's going to be clear separation between them and then the Raptors and the Celtics. I think T.J. McConnell can be a good shooter. I just don't think he shoots enough. Last year, he was 27 of 62 on threes. It's it's just not enough. 0.4 out of 0.8 threes per game um i think joel Embiid, if he can get back to the level he was as a rookie yeah that'd be um or maybe even like split the difference between his rookie three-point percentage and his second year three-point percentage that would probably help um but if ben simmons is going to continue to be a just completely three-point averse player like you said you're going to need a bunch of other guys to hit threes and they did pretty good with it last year and i i I would think they can at least replicate what they did last season. We did that big old podcast on the best lineups in the league. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that Sixers starting five was number one, wasn't it? Yeah. They, um, they were basically the best high volume lineup in the league. And year. I feel, I, I feel like I remember it being fairly comfortable and they, they bring that entire starting five back. I like the Mike Mascala addition for them. Um, how about the Bielitsa? Did, oh, wait. Sorry. I was, yeah, I was going to say the Bielitsa thing blew up on them, but I, I think you can make an argument that Mascala might even fit better. I think he can play minutes at the four or the five. Um, Amir Johnson has become, I think, pretty underappreciated over the last few years. He's never going to put up gaudy numbers uh, in the role that he has now, or even when he was a starter for the Raptors. He never really put up big numbers, but he's just one of those guys who does all the the you know cliche little things and i think wilson chandler can help them everybody was sort of down on this offseason for the 76ers because they didn't add lebron james um there was you know 29 other teams that also didn't add (laughs) 
LeBron James this season. And for missing out on their plan A, I think they recovered fairly well. And they've, if Fultz is, you know, there's a lot of hype about these Drew Hanlon workouts that he's been having this summer. Um, if he's close to the potential that everybody thought he had when he was drafted number one overall, I, I think their bench gets much better, you know, in addition to Muscala and Wilson Chandler and uh, whatever they get from Zaire Smith, like you said, that who knows if he'll even be able to play this season. And I, I like TJ McConnell. So basically, this is my long-winded way of saying they bring back this incredible starting five, and I think there's there's reason to believe that the bench is better. And after all this rambling, I'm still taking the under just because I think I think the ceilings of the Raptors and Celtics are still a little bit higher. I think you just said it. This, it comes down to their bench for us because the team overall after the All-Star break was fifth in offensive rating, but and their bench was sixth in offensive rating. And if you can get that identity from them, you're golden. I don't know that the bench has that identity Is is basically – my point with them. And I don't think it's an insult to say that they're going to win fewer than 55 games. Yeah. So it, but if, as you kind of pointed out, if Joel Embiid is more rookie year shooter than sophomore year shooter, well, should I put those in air quotes since you're a jazz fan or, uh, <laughs> but if, if he kind of comes closer to hitting that level, particularly as a spot up shooter, they don't need him to take these. He took some pull up threes, his rookie year that were just fantastic, but they don't need him to be that guy that they'll be, They'll be great, and that kind of you talk yourself into that being a four-out lineup. But I, I mean, I want to see whether Ben Simmons expands his range at all. I don't expect him to start shooting threes, but you kind of need him to develop a semi-reliable on-the-move floater or something, just because he looked he looked solvable at times in the playoffs, and maybe that's yeah. just the playoffs. But that's the most important part of the year. Yeah, um, the playoffs were were concerning to me for somebody who was very much on the Ben Simmons bandwagon, um, and more specifically, the Ben Simmons doesn't need to shoot threes bandwagon all season. That was the first time it was against the Celtics that I thought, eh, maybe maybe there's something to this argument, and I need to pay closer attention to it. Um, one, my one last thing on them and Ben Simmons. 538 wins above replacement projection for next season. Number one, Russell Westbrook. Number two, James Harden. Number three, LeBron James. Number four, Yanni Antetokounmpo. Number five, Stephen Curry. Number six, Chris Paul. Number seven, Ben Simmons. Uh, number eight, Jokic. Nine, Jimmy Butler. Ten, Anthony Davis. They project him to be comfortably one of the ten best players in the NBA next season. Um, his comps on the 538 projection system, Chris Weber, Blake Griffin, Lamar Odom, Jason Kidd. Um, <laughs> if he's a top 10 player, then under 54 and a half might be, we, we could both be wrong on that. But again, like you said, it's not an insult to say that they're going to end up with like 52 or 53 wins. That's an improvement over last season. Um, that's probably the number three seed or team in the East. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still sticking with the under. It's just impressive to, to see where Ben Simmons is projected to go next season. More likely to be a top 10 player in the NBA next season, Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. I think Ben Simmons, uh, 
I'm I feel like I'm lower on Embiid than most people are. I think his turnover woes uh, do more to hurt the Sixers than people give them credit for. Um, he's a he's a great defender. There's no question about that. He was a he was a very legitimate defensive player of the year contender. I just I don't know if all of his post ups and all of his turnovers. There were times in the playoffs where I thought, you guys are just killing possessions by pounding it into him and getting nothing out of it. Yeah, he needed to make – he has tunnel vision sometimes. I do think he's a better passer than people admit, though. And maybe it's the Russell Westbrook level of passer where he draws so much attention that he can – but there just has to be an open guy, so these are easy passes to make. There's value in that, though. If you're going to run the ball through the post – with him a bunch and he recognizes when to pass out of double teams. There was, there was like some additional defiance from him last year though, because of his injury during the playoffs. And he kind of felt like he needed to carry the team. I'm hoping that he kind of got it out of his system. This, this Sixers squad kind of harkens back to that thunder squad that broke up too soon. It it felt like they needed to lose in the playoffs one last time um, before they could make that transcendent leap. The Sixers might still need to get bounced in the first or second round again um, b- before they're ready to make their foray into title contention, but they're close, and I think Embiid's going to be a, a huge part of that, and a lot of the issues with him, turnover-wise, they're solvable. I mean, he even during the regular yeah, season, they should be. he turned the ball over on 15.9% of his post-ups, which is too much, but it's not... There were players that turned it over more in those situations. It just seemed like yeah, Jabari Parker turned the ball over more frequently on his post-ups. Uh, Dwight Howard turned the ball over more frequently on his post-ups. LOL, Dwight Howard still getting post-ups. Yeah. It's just, it seems like so much more because of how often he posts up. And you want that number to come down. But Marcus Gasol, he turned the ball over more frequently on his post-ups. The playoffs, though, I will say, those were... Uh, those were absolutely egregious, and that's that's also I think factoring into you know the recency bias there. But he he was he was getting killed by Aaron Baines for stretches of the playoffs. He did again though on the post ups. Only fifteen percent of his post ups ended in a turnover during the playoffs. It was that. What was what was his points per possession from? Oh, those were the not pretty. He shot thirty eight point nine percent and point eight one points per possession, and the post ups accounted for forty one percent. Yeah, of his touches. That's a maybe. This is like a, a my anti post up rant that I probably do like once a month. But almost forty percent of Embiid's possessions were finished out of the post, and he scored. This is regular season numbers now, and it's it's not far off from what you just said about the playoffs. But anyway, forty percent of his possessions, zero point nine seven points per possession, which is good uh, as it relates to other post ups. That put him in the seventy fifth percentile, but. points per possession is like way below a league average (laughs) possession. Yeah. Um, So just the post-up in general is so much less efficient than, than other ways to play basketball. And I get that some teams want to stick with it because it keeps defenses honest. Um, If you have somebody who commands a second defender down in the post, it opens things up in other parts of the floor. But 40% of his possessions is a lot. Um, and then maybe this is more of a, 
a philosophical thing than anything that Joel Embiid can change. Like maybe this is something that the team needs to change. But I think for him to be the offensive plus that most people think he is, he's going to have to cut down on those turnovers, which like you said, is something that can readily be fixed. And I, and I think he's probably going to have to cut down on the post-ups a little bit and, and get that three point percentage back to closer to where it was as a rookie, which was right around 36, 37%. And I, I think that's doable too. So these are, he's a really good player. Obviously these are almost nitpicky things, but I, I just feel like I, I kind of had to explain why I'm not quite as high on him as other people are. I definitely, I think that's completely I, fair. Before we move on, where would you be on that question? As, ben Simmons. As, that was, I was okay. just, as someone who's going to control the ball more, he just has extra power over the game and leaving his imprint. I, it wouldn't surprise me to see Joel Embiid be the player that's more likely to end up in the top 10 or, or actually get there. But Ben Simmons, just again, the, the influence he's going to have over the game and the offense and what yeah. he's going to do defensively. Embiid was a legitimate defensive player of the year candidate, but Ben Simmons was good himself and he's he was. Uh, his role might be expanded this year. Maybe you see him playing. It'd be fun to see the Sixers roll him out at center sometimes. I don't think they have another big man on the roster where you say, oh, we need to get this guy minutes. So that can never happen with Ben Simmons. Uh, you know, Jonah Bolden, Amir Johnson, uh, Mike Muscala. Those aren't guys that you need to guarantee a certain amount of minutes to. No. And you're right about his defense. His, his length at the one caused a lot of problems league-wide for people he's and and i think he could realistically average like 20 points eight rebounds and eight assists next year maybe even more assists like he's he has a chance to be historically special um all right now let's go to the toronto raptors they are at 54 and a half and i actually this is another one that's maybe kind of comfortable for me to go ahead and say over um but i'm gonna let you Take this one first. It's comfortable if you think Kawhi Leonard finishes the season there. And I'm not... And healthy, yeah. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that he will. I said that on the last podcast. I picked the over as well, though. Kyle Lowry is still... You look at the pieces other than Kawhi Leonard, and that's what really makes this team so tantalizing to me. Yeah. Kawhi Kawhi Lowry, wow. Kyle Lowry (laughs) is still really, really good. And people who think otherwise need to check themselves... He has been the Raptors' most valuable player every year, and that includes last season. They were talking about, some were talking about how the Raptors traded their best player in DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan is a a very good player. He was probably top 25 in the league last year, certainly top 15 at scoring the basketball when you look at what he was doing last year, especially his development as a pick-and-roll ball handler. Kyle Lowry is better. He's a better defender. Um, the fact that you can move him off the ball as a point guard is a big deal. He hits some really tough shots too. And of all the players last year who attempted at least 53s after using between three and six dribbles, I like that number just because it's, it's a lot of dribbles and then seven plus dribbles is just weird. He ranked second in three point percentage. He knocked down 42.9% of those off the dribble three point looks. That is hard. Like those are tough shots that he is hitting. The player in front of him, by the way, shout out to Indiana, Tyreek Evans. That's the player that they're getting. Uh, <laughs> behind him was Damian Lillard. Those are two good names to kind of be sandwiched between. Yeah. James Harden was was fifth. Terry Rozier was fourth. Terry Rozier stands can go crazy. 
Sixth place is making me uneasy because it was Austin Rivers. But anyway, he's more on him in a second. <laughs> it they have so many interesting lineups, and I think there's a chance that in a vacuum they're going to be the tougher matchup for Golden State than Boston because Kyle Lowry, you can keep him on the floor versus Golden State. You probably can't play him with Brad Van Fleet in that series, but Dellen Wright is long enough to defend up some positions. You have Danny Green, you have CJ Miles, you have Kawhi Leonard, you have OG Ananobi. Pascal Siakam is switchy himself, or as we say now, he has that switchitude gene. And Norman Powell, I don't know what he's going to be, but he's he's a wing. And you have all these guys that can really help you rotate and you can field a bunch of these different lineups. You also have the option of going with more traditional-sized combinations. You have Ibaka, Balanchunas. You signed Greg Monroe's a good fourth big to have at this point for them. Yeah, he's, I think he's he's going to help. So I, I believe they're going to be the best team in the Eastern Conference if they keep Kawhi Leonard for the entire year. And it's, it's I, you can easily, I think, talk yourself into the Celtics, but the Raptors, they're just built in, in a different way because where Boston, you still kind of look at them and you wonder where is that secondary shot creation coming from outside of Kyrie Irving. I get the reflexive answer is Gordon Hayward. I also get that Jalen Brown and Tatum and Terry Rozier also showed these different flashes. The Raptors actually have two of these really good, tough shot makers in Leonard and Lowry. And even Van Fleet showed some stuff there last year. That's just not, I don't think that Boston has that type of depth of assurance when looking at the from scratch creativity looking for your own shot offensively and that would be the difference for me and the their defense could be neck and neck could we could be looking at the first and second ranked defenses in the league right with boston and toronto yeah uh utah will be in that conversation san antonio maybe just because they seem to no matter who's on their team i i can't wait to see how popovich turns DeRozan into a plus defender i just feel like it's almost inevitable um, but yeah, those two teams will be in the top defense in the league. Um, the Warriors will probably be there too. Now that I'm thinking about this question, but back to the Raptors, I, I'm fairly confident that they're going to be the top seed in the East. Uh, they were this past season and they, to me, got objectively better, uh, this off season. Objectively in my way little, better. Yeah. In my wins above replacement added over the offseason little chart that I've been doing all summer. The only teams that added more net wins were the Lakers, Warriors, and uh, the Warriors adding Kawhi Leonard, Danny Green, and Greg Monroe. It, it was just, it was a home run of an offseason to me. Even if Kawhi Leonard leaves next summer, I, I think that was a shot that they had to take um, once presented this, uh, themselves. This roster right now is absolutely loaded. (laughs) Like you said, Kyle Lowry's been their best player. They kept him. Um, If you just look at advanced stats and you look at since since Kyle Lowry joined the Raptors, he's been like a borderline top 10 player in the NBA. Um, Danny Green is still solid. Kawhi Leonard, if he's 16-17, Kawhi Leonard is an MVP candidate. Uh, Ibaka and Valanciunas are solid, but I think I think what I'm really getting at when I say this lineup is, or this roster is loaded is they pretty much kept that entire bench 
which was the best bench in the NBA last season. And now they even add OG Ananobi to that bench um, because he'll be bumped out of the starting lineup by Kawhi Leonard. And they add Greg Monroe to that bench. Um, He's another guy whose role has changed drastically as the NBA has changed since he entered. But he was still good last year. He averaged 18 points, 12 rebounds, 4 assists, and and 1.5 steals, almost one block for 36 minutes last season. And he had a plus 2.4 blocks plus minus. He was like an objectively good player. He's now the backup five. Um, they have plus guys as the backup at every single position. They, they could run like an 11-man rotation and be fine. They're just, <laughs> they're stacked. And I think um, being the number one seed last year, getting, I think, clearly better this summer, to me, makes them... Uh, I don't want to say like an obvious choice for number one, because I do think Boston will be very, very good, but I I feel fairly confident that they're going to be number one again here. I I'm fascinated by how much Spurs fans seem to dislike Danny green. He was just, he, he's not a throw in, he's, he's still Mm -hmm. really good defensively. And he was dealing with a groin injury last year, apparently, which explains any struggles that he might've had there. He can still chase around some point guards. That's a big deal. Here's here's a stat for you, though. Since 2013-2014, there are three non-bigs who, are, who in every one of those five seasons have averaged at least one steal and one block per 36 minutes. Danny Green is one of them. Listen to the other two. Giannis Attentacumpo and Draymond Green. That's... That's, that's impressive. In, that's yeah. incredible company to be in. We're talking, and we're talking about since 2013, 2014. That's five seasons. He's only missed, he's never missed more than 15 games in a single season during that span. Th- this guy can play, and he's going to be a big defensive asset for the Raptors. I do hope that they can get to a point where they have Green, Ananobi, and Kawhi Leonard on the floor at the same time. And I, they should, I think, because Ananobi can defend the floor. Leonard doesn't like to, but he can. That that would be that's a defensive combination right there. And maybe you put Siakam at five and then Lowry at the one. That's just that's a defensive lineup. I don't know how you maybe do with your rim protection there. There could be some issues, but there are different combinations you could run if you want to put Abaka at the five. And maybe that's the concern about this team is that they don't have this top notch rim protector. Maybe Siakam turns into it. Abaka's always been overrated there. Valanciunas is a coin toss, and that's only if he's in a standstill role. That's my Danny Green rant here, though. He's more than just he's a throw-in, and that's a yeah. big reason why this team could be such a title threat. Um, if you do <clears throat> on the player ser- or the player season plan or basketball reference, Danny Green's career three-point field goal percentage as the minimum, um, and then you make five hundred three-point attempts a minimum, and sort it by defensive box plus minus. There's Danny Green at number one with a 2.1 defensive box plus minus. Then it drops all the way down to a one defensive box plus minus for Joe Ingles, who's second. Um, that is absurd. Basically, the only two guys that are close to him are Joe Ingles and Otto Porter. Like, Danny Green is is still, especially if he's if he's healthy this season, he's still like one of the quintessential 3 and D players. In the league, it, it wasn't long ago that we were talking about San Antonio having the best perimeter 
defensive combination in the league because Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard, who was the exact trade package that the Raptors just got, um, their their new starting wing combination is is going to be ridiculously good. And like I said when we talked about the Bucks, if Kawhi Leonard is healthy, he's probably the best player in the Eastern Conference. And then you have a top five to ten player in the conference in Lowry. And then, again, just the depth on this team is insane. So I, I think they're going to be extremely good. A um, lot of underrated guys, and just they're, they're going to be really interesting to watch this season. I'm with you. Can you uh, – I'm sorry, can you – there are – this is – there are two players, active players in the league right now, non-bigs, averaging at least one steal and one block per 36 minutes while shooting at least 38% from three for, for their career. It's Kevin Durant and Danny Green. Yeah. I made it a minimum of 100 appearances just to make sure that guys had more than a season of yeah. full games under their belt. That's Danny Green, ladies and gentlemen. Basically, Kevin Durant is all I'm saying. <laughs> He's very, very good, um, despite what a lot of people think. Another thing I was thinking while we were talking about the Raptors, their <clears throat> I test Twitter has this bizarre hatred for Kyle Lowry and Al Horford, and it will never make any sense to me. Here, the thing with Al Horford is at least I, I understand the I test people not liking him. I don't, I don't understand it, but I get how you could watch him and not think. If you're not watching yeah. what he's doing, but like Kyle, <laughs> Kyle Lowry, I don't see. Yeah, he's incredible. Um, I, I yeah, I just don't get it. And when there's so much objective evidence beyond points per game that he's been the Raptors' best player, um, it's a little crazy to me that there's still so many fans that rely on on nothing but points per game. It just blows my mind. Um, all right, that brings us to the last team in the Eastern Conference. One of the weirdest teams to me, even though in a lot of ways it's 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 really similar to what it's been for two or three years now. They just they made a lot of changes to the bench, and they'll have a new starting center, obviously. Uh, but the Washington Wizards, forty four and a half. I'm taking the over, even after I went on that little mini rant about how weird this roster is. I think if John Walls healthy that's still one of the better backcourts in the league with john wall and bradley beal Otto porter another player who's criminally underrated by those who rely solely on the eye test um i think they're even better if Otto porter plays some more four but i don't i don't know if they'll be able to get to those lineups these weird <laughs> moves that they've made um there was issues between john wall and marston gortat last year that 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 could be even worse between John Wall and Dwight Howard, who's had a hard time getting along with a lot of different locker rooms. And now they add Austin Rivers, who I think is better than a lot of people realize, but he's still, um, I still don't think he moves the needle very far in a positive direction. And I don't want him to take minutes from Thomas Sadoransky. They also have Jeff Green, who's <laughs> I, I maybe in the same camp as Dion Waiters in terms of <laughs> whether or not he helps you. Um, there, there's just a lot of oddities with this roster that brings back the same core that it's had for a few years now. And I think it's those core guys, Wall, Beal, and Porter, that are leading me to pick the over. I went with the over, too. I just don't feel incredibly well about it. Yeah, I don't feel great about it either. John Wall's health is going to be big for them. He was not good out of the pick and roll last year. 
uh, among the 82 players who ran at least 200 pick and rolls as the ball handler, uh, he posted the fourth highest turnover percentage, 22.3. Only Manu Ginobili, Torian Prince, my guy, and Joe Ingles turned the ball over more frequently. How dare you? In those situations. (laughs) How dare you look at the numbers? (laughs) Something Uh, wrong with that stat. He was also in this same category. Bottom 10 in effective field goal percentage, 40.4. That is just barely in front of Lonzo Ball. Sandwich between Lonzo Ball and Javante, and Javante Murray and De'Aaron Fox. Just like a bunch of these younger guys. And so, yeah. I, if you actually, if you look, it's basically there are no veterans in the bottom 10. It's Josh Jackson was the lowest, then Shelvin Mack, but that's Shelvin Mack, Dylan Brooks. <laughs> Hey, that's that's Orlando Magic leading assist man Sheldon Mack from last year. <laughs> uh, Dylan Brooks of Memphis had the third high, uh, third lowest effective field goal percentage. Dennis Smith Jr. fourth lowest. Frank Nielakina fifth lowest. Terry Rozier sixth lowest. Lonzo Ball seventh. John Wall eighth. Murray ninth, and De'Aaron Fox tenth. That's really that's weird company to find yourself in if you're John Wall. And I know it could have been an off season. He shot better. And normal on threes, he. I. I don't. I'm. I'm John Wall indifferent. Is that okay? I think he's on probably the worst con. One of the worst contracts in the NBA now. Well, not yet, since the inst- extension hasn't kicked in. But that deal is not it, going to age well. Yeah, um, it will be as soon as it starts. It's, I've always been bad. really disappointed about his defensive inconsistency. Uh, it's Eric Bledsoe against the Celtics and Terry Rozier levels of frustrating how much his effort <laughs> waxes and wanes. And he falls in love with these dumpy twos too much. I'm not trying to destroy John Wall, who is who is an all-star point guard, but when your best player is kind of that much of a, a question mark or such a divisive talent figure, you are going to have some issues. And, and I don't know what this team's depth is going to look like you could talk yourselves as you said into them being a little bit deeper Sadoransky was good last year maybe he can lead some second units on his own or perhaps Austin Rivers as the buffer really helps him I really like Kelly Oubre Jr. still they tried to kind of make him in really certain breaking case of emergency scenarios use him as a half-court ball handler didn't work out now you have both Austin Rivers and Sadoransky those bench heavy units if you want to put Bradley Beal Otto Porter and Wall on the bench at the same time, those could look better. I think you need to try Otto Porter in some me time, if that makes any sense. If you're going to rest Beal and Wall at the same time, see what Porter can do in like those second, uh, you those second units. The major concern that I have for this team though is just their spacing. After Beal and Porter, your guaranteed shooting kind of dissipates, and this team wasn't a bad shooting team last year, but they didn't take threes relative to the rest of the league, particularly frequently. Uh, They were fourth in accuracy, but 23rd in attempts per 100 possessions. And it's only going to get harder to manufacture space for John Wall and Bradley Beal and Austin Rivers drives because Marcin Gortat's pick and pop appeal was a big part of that offense. And you lose that with Dwight And he's been one of the league leaders in screen assists for years now. Right. And Dwight Howard can still be a good screener, but are you going to have to now funnel the ball into the post for him? Because that's going to be an issue if you fall into that trap. He's never been a great passer, but you look at is how good of a if what are you going to do with John Wall off the ball? It's kind of this Reggie Jackson scenario 
in Detroit. And losing Mike Scott is going to be low-key big for them. He was fantastic last year and was someone you could talk into bringing, here's the word again, some switchitude to that five rotation if you could play him as a small ball five. I don't think Green does the same. Markeith Morris is too much of a wild card there as well. I'm not thrilled about their 4-5 rotation right now. There's a chance that it's really bad, and Dwight Howard could help them if he's willing to buy into that rim-running, rim-protecting specialist role. I still don't. They are going to be at risk on some nights defensively, and and then the depth beyond that starting lineup, which should still be statistically superior, there are going to be too many just uncertainties there as well. That being said, they're top heavy enough that I think where I think the I think them and the Bucks are like those perfect 45, 46 win teams. And if you expect more from them, you're probably going a little bit too high. Yeah. Um That was the worst justification I ever made for an over. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I I feel like so I took the over too, and I feel like everything I'm thinking about is negative as well. Well here so I'll say this. Otto Porter is a fantastic basketball player, and I would advocate for him to get more kind of on-ball touches during those stints, rare stints, but probably not as rare as they should be when Beal and Wall are on the bench together. I I really like Otto Porter. Big fan of Kelly Oubre Jr. as well. Will Troy Brown play? He might be someone who's a little bit interesting to watch there as well. I, I think this team could end up being a lot deeper than they have been in years past. I don't think they've just assembled this sure thing collection of depth though Dwight Howard was third in the NBA in total post-ups this season um it was 36 percent of the possessions that he used he scored 0.83 points per post-up which was 39th percentile um last season he was 13th I think in total post-ups 28 percent of his possessions 0.84 0.84 points, uh, 38th percentile league-wide. For some reason, oh no, 2015-16 finally did load for me. Um, he's a lot further down the list here, I think. Hold on. Yeah, he's not even in the top 100 or top 50 for post-ups in 2015-16. So you got to go back a couple years to get away from this trend. But over the last two seasons, he's been one of the most frequently used post-up players in the league. Um, Again, I I think we could have some serious uh, headbutting going on between Dwight Howard and the other offensive players on this team, Bradley Beal and John Wall, and and but probably not so much Otto Porter because he's always seemed willing to sort of that take a backseat. It's going to make for some great. But yeah, that's that's what I'm getting at. This this could go south in a hurry in terms of chemistry if Dwight Howard is like demanding post-ups as he has in so many seasons in his career it's it's going to be very very interesting now if you want to look at it from like an optimistic point of view um maybe Dwight Howard's never really had a distributor quite like John Wall he played with Harden Nelson's about to kill you too (laughs) he played in Harden with with Harden in Houston but it was I mean, Harden was a great distributor even then, but it was before they fully embraced James Harden as a point guard. Um, he was supposed to be with Steve Nash uh, with the Lakers, but I, I, we all know what happened with Steve Nash and the Lakers. Like you mentioned, Jameer Nelson, he was a really good player. He made an all-star team with the Magic. He was never known as like a big 
setup guy. Um, so maybe John Wall can get Dwight Howard more easy buckets than he's been used to over the course of his career. But <laughs> there is there is high potential uh, for volatility with this team. But <laughs> like you said, we both took the over. So maybe we just spent all this time crapping on the Wizards for no the, reason. The other thing, though, is the Wizards aren't. They were 23rd in post-up frequency last year. And Marcin Gortat used post-ups on fewer than 17% of his offensive touches. It's not even like they have those, if they want Dwight Howard to post up, that they have those possessions to go around. That's not something that they're well, even hopefully he doesn't, used to doing. Yeah, hopefully he doesn't commandeer those possessions. Is He's going to hijack them. I'm going to set yeah. the, the over-under on the number of possessions that Dwight Howard hijacks per game in Washington. <laughs> I'm going to say 3.5. I'm going to take the over. Um, that, that was the easiest over-under we've done in this whole episode. I knew I should have put it at double digits, and you probably still would have picked the over. Should we run through our uh, our standings super, super fast? Because I think this podcast is now two hours plus. Yep, it's going to be uh, two, two and ten. So shout out to the Warriors. Not the actual Warriors, <laughs> but the podcast Warriors who have listened to us straight through. I've got Raptors 1, Celtics 2, 76ers 3, Bucks 4. Pacers 5, Wizards 6, Heat 7, Pistons 8, Hornets 9, Cavaliers 10, Nets 11, Magic 12, Bulls 13, Knicks 14, and Hawks 15. I'm not, I wasn't laughing at your rankings. I was laughing that the Wizards came in at 6th for both of us, and we, we just spent a good yeah. 10 minutes destroying them. I had, we were actually really similar on our standings. I had Raptors 1, or have Raptors 1, Celtics 2, 76ers 3, Pacers 4, Bucks 5, Wizards 6, Heat 7, Pistons 8, Hornets 9, Nets 10, Cavaliers 11th, Magic 12th, Bulls 13th, Knicks 14th, and the Hawks 15th. So our only differences were... Nets and Cavs and Pacers and, then, and Bucks were flip-flopped. Yeah. It wasn't even like... We're sorry so, there's not more Discord within this podcast. <laughs> because we're both so so smart and we know the nba so so well despite what you said in the intro or we're both so so off the mark but we're in lockstep (laughs) so it's okay um so like i said this was a two plus hour podcast i hope you guys were able to survive the whole thing i think we packed a lot of good information in there for you um if you want to talk to us about any of our over under calls and uh convince us to switch one way or the other uh hit us on twitter Dan is at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. The sponsor, at NBA underscore math. Like Dan said, you can still get 15% off at the nbamath.com slash shop. If you enter the promo code Benno, B-E-N-O, as always, if you have not left a rating, please do so. Uh, leave a review as well. Those are always fun to read. Um, tell your friends and family to subscribe. Like, like. Um, if they spend time listening to podcasts, especially NBA ones, and they don't have hardwood knocks, then there's, there's a gaping hole in their life that they don't even know about. And you can fix it just by telling them to listen to this show. Uh, until next time, we leave you with the shout out to Ben Udri and Kyle Anderson. <laughs>